Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, the show that loves nothing more than to compile our respective year-end best-of lists, a practice that takes on special meaning in the month of December. That's when studios tend to release the films they think will garner the most award attention. This past week saw the release of two films that arrived with a fair amount of anticipation. The first was Napoleon, Ridley Scott's look at the famous French emperor who once defied the rest of Europe in his quest for power and glory. The second was Saltburn, the latest effort by actress-turned-director Emerald Fennell, whose 2020 feature Promising Young Woman won both critical acclaim and, at least in some quarters, ridicule. Let's start by heading back in time and place the France of the late 1800s. It was then that a rough Corsican soldier named Napoleon Bonaparte began his ascension to what would become the highest rank in post-revolutionary France, that of emperor. Napoleon and his achievements and one spectacular defeat have been the fodder for dozens of films made by the likes of everyone from Abel Glantz to Woody Allen. And the man himself has been portrayed by everyone from Marlon Brando to, believe it or not, Dennis Hopper. Now Ridley Scott has given us his version, casting Joaquin Phoenix as the not-so-diminutive as commonly thought complicated mix of military genius, arrogance, and frumpy vulnerability. That last trait famously involves Napoleon's great love, portrayed here by Vanessa Kirby, and is a central focus of Scott's film, along with a sweeping view of history that makes a spark-note summation of the man's career look like Tolstoy's thousand-page novel War and Peace. Between the quick on-screen notations, one example of which lets us know that we're about to watch the 1805 Battle of Austerlitz, and Phoenix's Brando-like mumbling of lines, what Scott has put on screen is both massive and simplistic at once. Yes, the battle scenes are stirring, and the candlelit period settings feel authentic. But to think that the full drama of Napoleon and all that he meant to world history could be captured in just two hours and 38 minutes is about as much of a self-delusion as Napoleon's own belief that he could remain in power forever. Although supposedly Ridley Scott is going to deliver unto us a cut that is two hours longer than the theatrical version <laughs> that will eventually ooh, be ooh. On Apple Plus or something, because this is an Apple production that just happens to be in theaters. And I mean, I don't know how you tell the life story of, well, really any major historical figure without cutting things out. I mean, this movie does just kind of yada yada through major chunks of history and major <laughs> chapters in Napoleon's life. And I think it does eventually kind of lose focus of his impact on France socially, politically, economically. The first half of the movie, I think, handles all of that pretty well. I mean, it opens with the beheading of Marie Antoinette and goes from there. I think it loses focus of that. And apparently there are a lot of historical inaccuracies in this movie. I don't know enough about Napoleon to say whether that's true or not. I didn't even notice. But but also, I mean, he introduces characters like Talleyrand, who had a big effect in history. And there's a little notation at the end, Lord Talleyrand, blah, blah, blah. And you can't even read it, you know, We couldn't read it. And it's like, who is Talleyrand? Who is this? Who is that? So maybe we'll get more of him in the mythical four and a half hour cut. But I was thinking a lot as I was watching Ridley Scott's Napoleon of 
Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And not just because Kubrick was himself obsessed with Napoleon and for a long time planned to make a Napoleon film that ended up never getting made. Although a lot of the research that he did ended up in Barry Lyndon. But I was looking at Joaquin Phoenix in this movie and you know that he is one of my favorite working actors. I think he's a genius. And for a solid hour of Napoleon, I was thinking... What is he doing? What, what, well, he what was is kind of doing a Marlon here? Brando imitation because he was kind of mumbling. He's mumbling. <laughs> he couldn't he, keep his hat on. He's the only <laughs> obvious American in a cast of mostly Brits playing French people for the most part. I mean, he just sticks out like a sore thumb. And I kept thinking, like, is this a choice? Is he just sleepwalking through this? At one point, Napoleon literally does fall asleep during a tactical meeting with his own brother. And then I kept thinking about Ryan O'Neill as Barry Lyndon. And that was a performance that was, I think, misunderstood for a long time. And there's another case of a quintessential American actor being thrown into this European period piece and kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. And I think that it's by choice. And there's a moment during an attempted coup somewhere near like the 45, 50 minute mark of this movie where Walking Phoenix as Napoleon goes running out away from this group of marauders that's coming on him and he falls down and he's it's almost like a slapstick scene. See, that was and, my problem. At, well, it, it turns into farce yes, at different but that's, points. OK, but then I realized, ah, got it. This is a comic performance and this is essentially a satire. And I think the entire okay. movie yes. is about what a doofus Napoleon was, despite the fact that he was also a tactical genius. And I like the fact that the movie shows both of those things can coexist. And I think that Joaquin Phoenix's performance, despite the beginning where I didn't quite have a handle on what he was doing, I think it's a gutsy performance. It's not going to work for everybody. There are big laughs in this movie. How about and the, they're courtesy how about of Joaquin Phoenix's line. He talks about the British going, you think you're so great yeah. because you have boats. Hilarious. Or when he says, <laughs> they delivered great. unto me this lamb chop. You know, he has lines <laughs> like that. And so I think that it's very much of a piece with one of Scott's more recent films, The Last Duel, which was also about, you know, little men and their impotent rage and how they build up their the own legends rattling, in their minds. Yes. And in that film, you had Ben Affleck and Matt Damon <laughs> kind of digging into these goofball roles. And you realize halfway through that movie, like, oh, these guys are jokes. Mm. And the the mythic quality that they have is all in their head. And I think that's very much the case here. Now, take all of this. You're giving this movie a lot No, no. I think all of that is deliberate. And I think a lot of it is in keeping with themes that have run throughout Scott's work. And take all of this with a grain of salt because I'm not a Napoleon head. I don't know much about history. So I enjoyed this as almost like a borderline Python-esque that's how I felt historical about it. film. I, mean, I think it's deliberate. Well, well, okay, so and that's that's uh, the whole thing. If you reach that sort of epiphany, oh, maybe this is why these things are happening, but most important, why Joaquin Phoenix is doing what he's doing, then I think you can make your peace with this movie because otherwise, if you have this dissonance, yeah. and that's part of what I think about Napoleon, is we, from a historical perspective, learn about all these amazing, great things that he did. And here, what we see, like you said, is his being a doofus or his, like, we know that his love letters to Josephine, whose name he changed for her, because I think her original name was Rose. But at any rate, during this performance, you know, we just see this different side of him and was it real? I don't know either. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, I think I don't agree with either of you here. But <laughs> the only sign of an argument in your favor, I think, is the casting of Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington. Because at the end of the movie, he stands back and he's just really making fun of 
this little French guy, yes. you know, and, well, there's, and, and there's, that's terrific. There's a bunch of images throughout the movie that I think bolster my argument here because there's a moment beyond the coup scene that I talked about, which is played for straight comedy, beyond the line that you said, of you think you're so great because you have boats, which is a very funny line. <laughs> There's this scene where he finally rolls into Moscow and finds that it's been deserted already. And he's kind of pouting about the fact that he can't, you know, either liberate or destroy the city himself, whichever it may be. And he goes kind of sulking over to the throne that's been left there. And there's just like pigeons all around him. And I think that that is a deliberately pathetic image. At the end of the movie, the whole last half an hour of the movie, pretty much the only people he's interacting with are children. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a running theme throughout this film that Scott is sort of adopting this attitude that Napoleon was sort of a child in a man's body. And even though sort we of. see in the, sort <laughs> of and we see in the Austerlitz sequence that you mentioned, which I think is the most harrowing of the film, you see that he is a brilliant mind on the battlefield at the same time. And I think that's I don't know. I think that's an interesting idea, whether or not it's historically true. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you but, forgot. But you that's forgot, not why I go to the you movies. You forgot the you one know? scene in which later on he says, I burned down Moscow and somebody says, wait a minute. And you know who tells him that? A child. A child <laughs> corrects him. I, I think they burned it down for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he's making a point here. Well, let's talk about some of the other performances, and then I want to talk How about, about Vanessa Kirby. Yeah, I've liked her. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen her in a few other things, most notably The Crown, where she played Princess Margaret, and I think she acquitted herself nicely there. And I thought that she captured the sort of seductress that I think Josephine, for practical or other reasons, was willing to throw in her lot with these powerful men and get some things that she wanted. I don't think that she foresaw necessarily that her marriage to Napoleon would end up being annulled. In the movie, they talk about it as getting a divorce, but I think it was really an annulment in real life because after Pope Paul or one of the Pope Pius VII crowns him, I don't think he was going to get you know a divorce in any sense of the modern incarnation of that. So I thought she was great. I like these sort of people cycling in and out of Napoleon, faces that you would recognize. And I thought that the battle scene, I don't care if it's not historically accurate, but I thought the battle scene on the ice. Was, yeah, that's the Austerlitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Well, was well, amazingly yeah, shot. Not, I thought it was yeah. incredibly shot. We're not shot. talking about what he does best, which was he creates a scene. The production values of this movie are superb and should win Academy Awards. Even the candlelit scenes it harks back to Kubrick. What Speaking Kubrick of Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And Barry Lyndon. But... I think thematically, I just totally disagree with you, but what, Nathan. You, but maybe I need to see it again you at least five concede, years from now. Will you at least concede that this isn't just another bloated biopic that well, that's doesn't true. I, have an actual yes. attitude about its subject? There's yes. something going on here beyond mere well, look at this guy and the things he accomplished. Let, let's hope, because this is an A-list filmmaker. we got to give him some credit at any rate. That was our discussion of Napoleon. This is Movies 101, and it's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts of Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to discuss the Emerald Fennell film Saltburn. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio.
And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discussed Ridley Scott's biopic blockbuster, Napoleon. Let's now turn to something a bit more domestic, if only in a strangely perverse way. The basic setup in writer-director Emerald Fennell's film Saltburn feels familiar. A scholarship student at Oxford University named Oliver, played by the Irish actor Barry Keoghan, is enthralled by the charismatic upperclassman Felix, played by the Australian actor Jacob Elordi. When Oliver suffers a family tragedy, Felix invites him to come and spend the summer with his family at their estate called Saltburn. Pretty soon, Oliver finds himself embroiled in the family's domestic machinations, either as an object of curiosity, mostly by Felix's mother Elspeth, played by Rosamund Pike, or as a source of resentment by Felix's cousin Farley, played by Archie Madekwe. Despite its Brighthead Revisited-like scenario, though, Saltburn devolves into a kind of talented Mr. Ripley variation that, despite the efforts of Keoghan, Elordi, and Pike, not to mention the always-appreciated presence of Richard E. Grant as the family's patriarch, Sir James, is a middling, actually muddling effort that ultimately makes no sense at all. I might disagree with the makes no sense at all, but... That may be different from whether this was well executed in terms of uh, how it plays out. So, yeah, we're introduced to the characters in Saltburn as they're attending Oxford University. And we know right away that the Barry Keoghan character is going to be the quintessential nerd. And he's only able to befriend one other young man who's definitely an irritating, sort of annoying nerd. But... Then he finds himself, by choice, chance, or circumstance, involved with this group of popular guys. And we've seen this sort of class distinction play out before, and we're not really sure, you know, if this is going to do anything new or different. And then he is invited to spend the summer at the manor house of this clan of sort of misfits. And Jacob Alordi is the contact person. So he and the Barry Keoghan character have this sort of homoerotic relationship, best friend relationship. Romance. Uh, yeah. yeah, competition going on, etc. And so we think we have a good sense of where this is going to go and where it's going to end up. We are introduced to the entire family is comprised of quirky characters. And then there's the friend played by Carrie Mulligan, Paula. Not enough Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, well, you could Carrie never Mulligan. have enough yeah. Carrie Mulligan because I think that would have ramped up the film a little bit. So here is my problem with the film. Not the acting. I think there was some good acting. But in Saltburn, which is the name of the estate or the manor where they go to spend the summer, the problem that I had here is the fact that it seems so derivative of other more effectively created pieces. And I think most notably you mentioned the talented Mr. Ripley in your intro. And it did remind me of Patricia Highsmith. And the great Patricia Highsmith. Correct. Really, and that's that. part of the problem here. There's also, I mean, you can think back to some Hitchcockian noir presentations of characters who we don't fully appreciate or understand initially. And then there's the soundtrack. And I'm hoping that Nathan will talk about that because it adds something and nothing at the same time. Well, it's set in, what, 2006, 2007? 2006. So I, was, yeah. I was very familiar with some of the fashion choices and soundtrack choices that were made here. I, I noticed that Jacob Elordi has one of those little barbell piercings in mm -hmm. his eyebrow, which is very 
era accurate, I will say. I cannot speak to 18th century France, but I can speak to (laughs) early 21st century. UK? Yeah, teen life, I guess. Got it. Yeah, and I will even point out that this is not even the first film of 2023 in which Richard E. Grant plays the patriarch of a rich family that's ripped apart by an interloper who (laughs) seduces the entire family because remember, (laughs) the lesson came out earlier. This isn't even the first movie in which Barry Keoghan plays (laughs) a strange young man who infiltrates a wealthy family because we also have the killing of a sacred deer. I think both of those movies are actually better than Saltburn. I think that it's a beautiful movie and a well-acted movie, but I think it's ultimately empty. I mean, I guess it's class satire, social satire, but it doesn't really but have anything new to say. So, I, heard it, right. no. it was, I heard it described as a psychological thriller, but and I don't think that's thriller, either. Especially because as I was watching the story unfold, I thought, Okay, if it's heading in the direction that I think it's heading and it's going to end the way that I think it's going to end, that will be the least interesting variation on this story and the most obvious interpretation of the story. And then it ends there. But the way that Fennell structures it, she almost structures it like a big twist, like this final mm-hmm. pirouette where yeah, she goes, yeah, yeah. can you believe all of this was happening the whole because time? And I said, yeah, of because course. Because Oliver's narrating it all the way through, and, talking about love and being in love. And I had also heard about it being something of a provocation. But I actually thought it was, and maybe it's because I've seen too much, but I thought it was actually pretty tame. I mean, there are some scenes in this Wait movie. Wait a second. There are some yeah, scenes there are a couple. Movie. Well, okay. But listen, there are some scenes in this movie that are obviously trying to shock us to push the envelope a little bit, but I could name 10 other examples of similar oh, you're scenes so that are way jaded. more intense. You're so no, jaded. I, I think that what she's also trying to, obviously, again, to bring up Kubrick, <laughs> she's clearly trying to channel Kubrick. There's a hedge maze in this movie, which right. reminds yeah, me of yeah, Shining. Yeah. There are these big lavish masquerades, which obviously remind us of Eyes Wide Shut. And I also think she's maybe trying to kind of do sort of a Ken Russell kind of thing, like one of those perverse class satires, but she doesn't have the perversity of Ken Russell. And so Ultimately, Saltburn is – it threatens to be interesting and, and it never quite gets there and I just think it's – And it isn't because of the, uh, is the actors. No, and, and that's I think oh, no, the, the, the thing that we need to point out because even Allison Oliver, who I'm less familiar with, she's the sister who's she's kind of – She's good too. Yeah, she yeah. was good and I think – I'm not sure that I appreciate it fully because I haven't watched Euphoria – I don't think in Elvis that they did justice to Jacob Elordi. I oh, thought Priscilla, he was like yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Priscilla as yes. Elvis. Yeah, because yeah. he is a beautiful boy. He's a be- Not yeah. in the Timothy Chalamet no. way, but definitely the camera and, and you, loves him. And you totally understand why anyone would be drawn to him. There's also some offhand comments by the characters that the Jacob Elordi character has brought home other friends. Yeah, well, at least one, we know. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't really go anywhere. Or that's not really followed up on. And so there are some loose threads dangling here, and maybe they're loose threads by design, but I don't think it really adds any kind of intrigue or mystery to the movie. Well, and I'm really going to put something out there that's going to be uh, maybe a bizarre uh, sort of comparison. But I thought at various points of The Great Gatsby for some mm. reason. I mean, you know, so when you talked about Tom and Daisy Buchanan and how they were sort of careless people, mm-hmm. that's how I felt about this whole group, because they oh. weren't really mean-spirited. A whole other way in which this movie is derivative. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Because that's the thing, right? You're looking at Saltburn and thinking, okay, so clearly this is going to be a tables getting turned kind of movie. You have these Mm -hmm. clueless, arrogant, mean-spirited, wealthy people, and then in comes the poor interloper 
who's going to get some kind of revenge. But then you're right. They're never developed in a villainous way. I mean, certainly they're looking down their nose at the so-called lower classes, but I don't think they ever reach villainous territory. But I also don't think they're ever developed in a way where I thought, oh, these are believable human characters, or even these are amusing caricatures. It's kind of in between. Like, that's, it can't really decide Well, and that's which part of the problem with Carrie Mulligan, when she's so over the top, yes. and the rest of them don't really rise to that same level. But those scenes with Carrie Mulligan are funny. There's this scene oh, yeah. where they're at dinner, and she's been crashing with them, basically, which they shouldn't mind, because it's a massive, sprawling estate. But she says, oh, I think I'm actually going to go find a place to live. And they go, oh, that's great. That's great. And she says something, or I could just stay here for a little while. Oh, no, you wouldn't want... You, you should go find... So there's, like, some funny kind of commentary going on and here, there's but it doesn't the, really extend there's beyond There's a throwaway line much. when we find out what happens to her, and Rosamund Pike has the perfect line. Yeah, She'll yeah. do anything to get attention. Yeah, yeah. You know? So there are some funny jabs here and there, but, but again, it's nothing we haven't seen before. To me, the problem is all about intention. I think that this is only the second feature of yeah. Fennell. She did Promising Young Woman, which... And she my, won an my, Academy Award for it, for uh, writing. For the screenplay, yeah. yeah. My daughter hated that that movie. Uh She loathed that movie. (laughs) So there are people out there who do not like that movie. But I think this is a perfect case in which in the sophomore effort of a director, they write and direct and they think they just don't quite come up with a workable formula. It doesn't really work for me. It didn't work for me at all, in fact. I I do have to say that we mentioned it being well-made and well-shot. Linus Sandgren is the cinematographer. He's Damien Chazelle's DP won an Oscar for La La Land. There's one image in it that I thought had a lot of wit, and it's when Barry Keoghan first arrives at Saltburn. The big doors open, and there's a something of an aerial shot, and it's this beautiful crystal chandelier with a fly strip dangling <laughs> off of it. And I thought... That's a witty image, and it has more wit than most of the actual plotting and dialogue in the movie. So make of that what you will. Well, that was our discussion of Saltburn, and this is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster, and earlier in the show, Nathan Weinbin and Murray Pat Truthart and I discussed Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Let's take this moment to thank Cassia Fox for both producing and engineering the show, and we thank you to our loyal listeners. We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial, when we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the late, great Spanish artist Salvador Dali. At the age of six, I wanted to be a cook. At seven, I wanted to be Napoleon, and my ambition has been growing steadily ever since. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.